Welcome to Tibet Talks, a podcast series from the International Campaign for Tibet. You are about to hear the recording of a live conversation. We hope you enjoy the show. everyone. Um, welcome to a very special episode of Tibet Talks for our ICT family as uh, we are speaking about uh, the legacy of Lodi Gary Rinpoche. Uh, Gary Rinpoche spent his life working to garner support for the Tibetan cause and uh, resolve the Tibetan-Chinese conflict. He was a founding member of our ICT, serving as uh, president and as executive chair of the board of directors of International Campaign for Tibet. He was also the special envoy of His Holiness the 14th Dalai Lama, and he um, led nine rounds of negotiations with the People's uh, Republic of China on behalf of His Holiness and the Tibetan uh, government in exile, Central Tibetan administration. And Gerim Che was a strategist and he was somebody who always uh, looked to create opportunities for Tibet. Um, he built close friendships and he was admired and respected here in Washington, D.C., as he was around the world. He was a familiar figure in a suit and tie with his phone constantly ringing. Um, He worked um, tirelessly and uh, relentlessly. For those of us um, who worked with him, we loved him and we respected him and we served him with um, full passion and trust. Um, Although Gyarimuchi passed away in 2018, his legacy continues. His book, The Dalai Lama Special Envoy, Memoirs uh, of a Lifetime in Pursuit of a Reunited uh, Tibet, was just released by Columbia University Press. So it is our honor to have the first conversation uh, of this book here on Tibet Talks. Uh, To begin our Tibet Talks today, I would like to share a clip of Rinpoche speaking at the uh, Liu Kuan Yu School of Public Policy in Singapore in 2014. He speaks of 30 years of negotiating with the Chinese and uh, he speaks of interdependence and how everyone must work together to resolve uh, the Tibetan issue. Uh, I don't come with any blueprint or roadmap uh, you know, how to resolve the, the Tibet issue. Uh, if I had a, you know, blueprint or, you know, roadmap, uh, I would not be discussing about it. I would have solved that because uh, uh, fortunately or unfortunately, for the last 30 years, uh, you know, I have been the key interlocutor uh, on behalf of His Holiness uh, with the, uh, uh, the Chinese government. Uh, but, uh, those 30 years, you know, you know, has been uh, uh, challenging, disappointing, disappointing because uh, uh, I left the responsibility uh, without really making any major breakthrough. Uh, however, those 30 years of my dealing with Chinese government has somewhere and deep in my heart has given me uh, some hope. Uh, it is very difficult for me to pinpoint, if you ask, you know, uh, which some of you men, you know, Mr. Gary, 
what is it? What was it that you had with hope? I may not be really uh, able to articulate. Uh, you know, it's one of those gut feelings that you have. Uh, uh, so that's why I felt that even uh, after my retirement uh, from my uh, responsibility, uh, I felt bored as 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 a Tibetan, but also as to be very frank, a global citizen. That those thirty years of my experience in dealing with Chinese government, and in any you know half a century of dealing with the international community on behalf of His Holiness and Tibetans, that uh, I should continue to make whatever contribution that I can make. Uh, and one contribution that I can make is going around candidly sharing my thoughts because I believe uh, this just any issue, even the issue of Tibet, I don't think it's just my business, to be very frank. I think it's everyone's business. And here I may speak a little bit more as a Buddhist, though I'm not a scholar, of interdependence. Because if you really carefully examine, I don't think there's any single issue that is not unrelated. Uh, so therefore, you see, uh, you know, I come to you to speak to you uh, because I feel that this is a, an area, like any other issue, that we all must make, uh, you know, some common effort. With that, uh, we will begin today's program. We have two very, very special guests with us today. Um, but uh, just uh, before uh, we begin, uh, in this live program, we will be taking um, questions at the end. I would like to introduce our two special um, guests. Uh, one of our guests will be speaking from the standpoint of a uh, the white U.S. White House and State Department, and the other guest as a uh, fellow Tibetan and an official of the Central Tibetan Administration, as well as a close uh, friend and colleague of um, Garam Che. So, um, our first guest uh, has been has served in key positions in Washington for the past thirty years, including as President Obama's White House Counsel and as Assistant uh, to the President and Special Counsel for President Clinton. He has also served as Vice Chair of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and Chair of the International Human Rights uh, Law Group. In 1997, he became the first Special Coordinator for Tibetan Issues at the U.S. State Department. Uh, 25 years later, he remains a trusted friend of ICT and the Tibetan people. Please join me in uh, welcoming uh, Mr. Greg Craig. Hello, Hi. Greg. Welcome. Good to be here. Hello. Our next guest is also a veteran of U.S. Tibet uh, or U.S. policy on Tibet. Um, like Mr. Craig, he is a first. In 1988, he became the first president of the International Campaign for Tibet, and that is just one of many roles that he has played in his decades of service for the Tibetan cause. Our guest was also His Holiness the Dalai Lama's representative to North America from 1973 to 1986, and a special representative in Washington, D.C. from 1987 to 1990. In addition, he served as Chairman of the Cabinet of the Central Tibetan Administration in Dharamsala, India. Please join me in welcoming Mr. Denzin Tetong. Montezla, welcome Hello. to Hi. Tibet Talks. Thank you both for um, joining us. I want to first uh, begin uh, with, uh, with you, Denzila, as um, 
you and Gary J were close compatriots. Uh, you worked together um, in the early days uh, together at the Tibetan Youth Congress and uh, later in starting ICT. Uh, can you please tell us what it was like to work with him and uh, what he meant to the Tibetan community? Thank you. Uh, well, I've known Jeremjin uh, since uh, in way back at, uh, in Mount Hermon School in Darjeeling in 1962, uh, even as a shall we say, as a young teenager, Rinpoche had a tremendous amount of interest and concern for what was happening in Tibet. And so that continued from 1962 onwards till uh, when we met again in the late 1960s in Dharamsala, where I was working. Uh, Rinpoche was working in Delhi and uh, through our long-standing interests and concern for Tibet. We got involved in various Tibet activities. That's how we were together with starting the Tibetan Youth Congress and other efforts outside the uh, government, so to speak, and later working within the Central Tibetan Administration. Uh, we served in various capacities, but we were always working together to advance. Tibet's cause. That's a brief summary. And of course, I kept in touch with Rimshi until very recently. Thank you, Kundanzila. Uh, Greg, you also knew Lodi, but from a different capacity um, as your role as the first uh, special coordinator for Tibet in 1997 under Secretary Albright. That was your first time you came across uh, Lodi. Can you tell us? Uh, how Lodi, uh, you know, how, how you heard of Lodi and what Lodi's impact was as envoy and as you took on this role of um, special coordinator for Tibet in the first time? Well, Lodi was, was very well known in the human rights community long before I became special coordinator on Tibet as being one of the most effective human rights advocates in Washington, D.C. Now, his challenges were different in the House of Representatives, in the Senate, in the Congress, as compared with the challenges that he had in the, in the, in the White House and in the State Department. And the reason was that in the, in the Congress, the linkage between Chinese interests and Tibetan interests were, was more difficult to make. The Chinese could not influence American legislators the way they could influence American policymakers. And so I think Lodi was effectively and much more successfully an advocate in for Tibet among the members of the House and the Senate. And his challenges in the, in the White House and in the State Department were that he had to appreciate that there were people pursuing U.S. interests and bilateral interests with China that felt that Tibet was a distraction and that he had to deal with a much more complicated political terrain. Um, he really was enormously talented at doing that because I think of three things that he had as qualities that allowed him successfully to navigate through uh, the domains between the China Bureau and the State Department and the Human Rights Bureau, which was replicated in the, in the, in the White House. 
One was that he was very, very smart in understanding what the interests were and considerations uh, of consequence to whoever he was dealing with. And he, he deals with this directly in his book. He said, I've always felt that good results require mutual respect and an appreciation of our counterpart's situation and priorities. And he was just brilliant at understanding with whom he was talking, what was of concern. And he was he was always welcome. So the first thing let me just say is that he was never a problem to deal with. He was always a welcome and an interesting person, educator to people who were trying to learn about Tibet. Um, and he was, um, so A, he was smart. B, he was well-known. He had a history among the members of the Congress, but also with people like Richard Holbrook, with whom he had dealt before. And they knew him to be a trustworthy and and reliable interlocutor. So that was not the, the trepidation of dealing with many advocates that um, you could explain to him what was going on honestly, and you could trust him that he would not use that uh, to contrary, in contrary to your interests. And the third thing I say, in addition to being very smart and being very uh, well-known and respected and deferential, um, he was helpful. He always had thoughts and ideas about how to present a case. I can remember when we were preparing President Clinton for his trip to China, uh, I'd met with Lodi before going over to the White House with the Secretary of State and said, what would be the two messages that you would try to convey to President Clinton when he meets with Jiang Zemin? And he said, he said two things that I thought were very, very insightful. He said, first of all, the president knows the Dalai Lama, so he should try to humanize the Dalai Lama and deal with this effort that the Chinese make to demonize him and turn him into something that he really isn't. I thought that was a very helpful comment that I then conveyed to President Clinton, which I think Clinton acted on in his meetings. The second thing he said, which is put, which actually put China into a more traditional human rights issue, he said the president might consider raising the issue of political prisoners because there were many, many people of conscience who were in prison associated with Tibet. And by pointing that out, he put the Tibet issue smack dab in the middle of a traditional human rights concept, which, of course, the American government felt obliged to raise. And so I think on both of those instincts, he was helpful to me in educating the president on, on a useful way of approaching, um, of, of, of approaching the Chinese. And that is, I think, the mark of Lodi's genius was he had these instincts that were never difficult to understand, but he was deferential and patient and smart and helpful. Yes, that he really was. And he connected with um, leaders to staffers, to people from across, uh, across the aisle and uh, learned to work closely behind the scenes as well as in front. So what you say was very helpful. And uh, Denzila, in your, uh, if you could uh, talk about also, even in the Tibetan world, we have so many different uh, entities and organizations. And Rimche also, I think, uh, in his way, was able to um, uh, work with all of those different entities um, uh, in that way also. Yes? Very, that's true. Uh, 
I guess you have to say Rinpoche was very talented, even in the Tibetan world. Uh, the Tibetan world uh, in itself can be very complicated with many different layers and various interests. And I think Rinpoche was able to speak to different viewpoints, different interests, and different passions within the Tibetan community, and to always have uh, open communications and to nurture and keep these uh, connections alive, and which contributed towards his ability to impact what the Tibetan community was trying to do. I think he had that uh, talent, which is uh, an, an ability to be open to others and uh, not to be immediately biased by uh, information from other sources, so to speak, or uh, instinct, instinctive reactions to somebody's comments or demeanor, but to be very open to what a person uh, truly is. Uh, so I think that that was a talent and ability he had, which many recognize. Absolutely, thank you. And uh, a large, uh, uh, the middle section of Rinpoche's book talks about uh, many of these different, um, you know, the Tibetan uh, um, entities and uh, organizations and uh, uh, how they originated and the uh, history behind uh, many of these entities. So that uh, is included. And I think he specifically included those for um, the younger generation of Tibetans so they would have an understanding of um, uh, of uh, the uh, perspectives then. What how these organizations became, uh, and I can, as as um, as Rumchi, as working with Rumchi here also, he always felt in the, it, that yeah, it's very important to speak to the youth. Um, with that, I want to switch uh, to the topic of uh, dialogue. A special envoy of His Holiness Rumchi was assigned as the lead interlocutor of the dialogue with the Chinese uh, leadership to find a resolution to uh, Tibet through the middle way approach. Between 2002 and 2010, Jerome led 10 rounds of dialogues with the Chinese representatives, including presenting them with a written memorandum outlining um, the issues to be addressed concerning the Tibetan people. Mr. Craig, this dialogue process was an extraordinary achievement. Can you please tell us about convincing the Chinese to enter dialogue with uh, His Holiness and other representatives? And what did the U.S. do to support the dialogue process? Well, first of all, may I say we, we, we had to do some work inside the government to persuade other officials inside the government that pursuing and promoting the idea of a dialogue between of the Dalai Lama, his representatives, and the PRC was something that the United States should care about and should spend time and effort to promote. And of course, that required getting to know what that meant, be actually talking to the, to the Dalai Lama or to his representative. And, and the way we achieved that inside the government, and may I just say that um, Lodi was successful in persuading both the Secretary of State and the President of the United States in 97 and 1998 to include the issue of dialogue with the Dalai Lama as part of the bilateral conversation between the United States and China. That was a huge achievement because then it became really 
a component of the U.S. relationship with China that we would urge the Chinese to engage in dialogue with the Dalai Lama or his representative. And of course, to do that, he had to persuade the American officials that this was a perfectly legitimate, intelligent, and minimal request that shouldn't in any way, shape, or form challenge the sovereignty of, of the PRC, and that they should, in an ordinary world, agree to it. And so I can, I can recall um, the importance of, of the president meeting with mm -hmm. the Dalai Lama in 97 and in 98, and I can recall the importance of persuading the officials that traveled with Madeleine Albright to meet with Zhang Zemin uh, prior to the president's visit to include as a talking point in her discussions with Zhang Zemin the question of engaging in a dialogue with the Dalai Lama. Now, there was a back and forth inside the State Department officialdom that Lodi was not aware of and didn't report in his book. Uh, nor does he, by the way, violate the rules of the Dalai Lama's meeting with the President of the United States in his book, reporting what went on in those conversations. But let me just tell you what he did in those conversations, the Dalai Lama with Lodi, was to persuade the president that this was something that was perfectly legitimate and reasonable and that the, the middle way was, in fact, a way of resolving this without China having to pay a high price and accommodating, um, essentially, the basic desires and legitimate desires of the Tibetan people. So, yes, Madeleine Albright raised the issue of dialogue with Zhang Zemin, and Zhang Zemin could not stop talking about it. For 15 minutes, he responded to Madeleine Albright's brief talking point about uh, he should you should spend some time meeting with the Dalai Lama, and off went Zhang Zemin. He wanted to talk about it. And then when the President of the United States raised it at the end of his meeting, bilateral meeting, with Zhang Zemin, um, the issue of the Dalai Lama came up right at the end of the press conference, famously. And if you recall, the president said, you should, you should meet him, I think you'd like him. So there you see, that was Lodi advising the Dalai Lama, advising government officials in the United States about the importance of just talking basically about dialogue. And this was before the dialogue that, that Lodi ultimately got involved in occurred in the years 2002 through 2010. I will recall in the earlier episode uh, of Tibet Talks with you, um, we had covered uh, that conversation and also President Clinton raising it directly at that time. It was such a huge deal uh, for all of us uh, in the Tibetan world to see President Clinton raise it directly at a press conference like that. It was in public. It was yes. not just privately in the, the private bilateral. He raised it in front of the world uh, in that press conference. Was that pre-planned or it wasn't pre-planned? It just, I, I don't know whether it was going to happen or not. <laughs> did you, have a you never quite know what he's going to do. I, my fingers were crossed, and actually you, you could have heard a whoopee <laughs> went up when I, I heard him raise the question. Because actually, if you saw that press conference, you knew that Zhang Zemin was immediately engaged in the issue. And, and he wanted to talk about it, too. Oh, I remember, but I, but I remember him turning his back and trying to <laughs> leave, That's but true. President he Clinton couldn't. was straight on. He couldn't. Yes, very much so. Tenzila, from the Tibetan perspective, uh, for our viewers, could you share what 
those 10 years of dialogue meant and the dialogue starting and the process starting uh, in 2002 and then you know through the years I remember in 2000 in the middle of the dialogue in 2007 and 2008 the uprisings happened and there was so much hope um, that something would resolve. Could you speak about a little bit about that dialogue process and uh, what the Tibetan perspective was? Well uh, as far as the dialogue process and Rebuchi taking a lead and uh, being able to revive some kind of a speaking arrangement with Chinese, the Chinese leadership uh, in itself was a, a significant achievement of sorts among the Tibetans and maybe among Tibet supporters. Uh, there was great skepticism about the Chinese. Uh, nobody believed that the Chinese would come to a table and talk with the Tibetans, uh, let alone, you know, in substance. And uh, overall, uh, with the Rinpoche's effort, he somehow managed to bring them to the table, so to speak. And uh, irrespective of whether they talked substantively or not, or whatever long-term benefits the Tibetan issue will have from history of engagement, uh, Rinpoche was able to show the world that at least we can bring the Chinese to the table and that there is space for discussion and there is possibility of looking at the Tibet issue in a completely new new way. So I think, uh, uh, as, I was, as I was trying to say, uh, irrespective of any outcome from the dialogue in a, on a short-term basis or down the line, uh, the fact that Rinpoche was able to sit with the Chinese officials in Beijing and they with him in an official manner, that itself changed the whole sort of uh, dynamic of the Tibetan uh, relationship with the Chinese. And of course, Rinpoche was representing his holiness and the exiled Tibetans. But it put uh, the whole issue of Tibet on a completely new level and uh, made believers out of governments, so to speak, whether it's the US government, or the government of India, or many other European countries who had tremendous amount of sympathy, but felt that a real resolution with China was really not a practical kind of idea. So when these dialogue process began, it uh, gave real meaning to possibility. Thank you, Denzila. And I remember as ICT staff here, many of our staff were involved in supporting Rinpoche. Uh, in his work uh, for the dialogue, and a lot of preparation had gone into that, into the memorandum of genuine understanding between the that was the memorandum that was presented, and uh, otherwise uh, as well. So, Tenzila, uh, as you know, one of the uh, passions of Rinpoche was uh, talking about the history of Tibet, and right now we have a. Um, new bill in Congress called Promoting a Resolution to the Tibet-China Tibet Conflict Act, which is uh, um, with a vision uh, to promote uh, dialogue and pressure China, Chinese government to return to the negotiating table. But um, what do you think the Resolve Tibet Act means for the Tibetan cause? And um, uh, do you think, uh, uh, what do you think Rimshia would have said of something like this? 
Oh, well, I'm sure Rinpoche would welcome to, uh, this effort. And, uh, and I, I see this effort in a slightly new kind of way in that if uh, previous resolutions or statements have been, uh, in a sense, about sympathy and support for Tibet, here is an effort by uh, uh, Congressman McGovern and his co-chair to insist that the U.S. actually do something to resolve it. And, uh, uh, and a very important part of that is to insist that the Tibet issue is not a settled issue by any means. That the historical and political status of Tibet is yet to be pro properly defined or acknowledged. So I think uh, it's an important uh, initiative and Rinpoche would, I'm sure, would have certainly supported such an effort. Thank you. Atenzla. Um, Greg, I want to talk about Lodi as a leader. As um, What was it about Rinpoche's personality that allowed him to be so successful as His Holiness's special envoy in uh, and be like a leading voice for Tibet in Washington, D.C.? Well, there were many components to his personality that he used very effectively in his, in his job, one of which was as teacher. And, and let me just say that I, I totally agree with Tenzin that the idea of telling the history of Tibet and telling it accurately and completely is hugely important. And that is a lesson I learned from Lodi himself, who, who made a point of explaining where the history comes from and how the Chinese look at it and how the Tibetans look at it and what the truth is. So you had this instructional aspect to his personality, patient, uh, intelligent, and, um, and uncritical, uh, because he knew that we did not all grow up knowing the history of Tibet, and we had to be essentially instructed a little bit about it. It was true about the society, the society in Tibet, the history of Tibetan society and Tibetan Buddhism through the eyes of the Han Chinese is very different, the way in which the Tibetan people look at it themselves. Mm -hmm. And so it was important for, for Lodi, for us to understand that aspect of things. Now, the other thing about him, in addition to his teaching, he was, and his patience was his, um, willingness to be honest about mm -hmm. the history, uh, but not only about the history, but about the current condition of Tibetan politics and Tibetan society, the divisions. I mean, he became an instructor in political science that you could rely on uh, as to what was going on inside the Tibetan community, both inside, inside Tibet as well as in India. A, he was a teacher. B, um, he believed in honesty. And C, he was patient and understanding. But D, he was insistent. He, he, he was relentless is too strong a word because that was not his personality, but he was on not missing the message. And so you could have a perfectly wonderful time talking to Lodi because he was never threatening and he was never unpleasant and he was never in any way rude or commanding. But you knew he was there for a reason and that his life had meaning to it, and that he had a cause. 
So that just generated a whole lot of respect. All of that, I think, was part of the personality that made him so effective. One final thing, working for Tibet is a challenging task because success is not around the corner. You, you really have to look for small triumphs. And I would tell you that Lodi was unfailingly positive and encouraging, even though he understood exactly how difficult and the, the, the challenge was and how high the mountain was. He really went out of his way to encourage others. He had to encourage himself, too, because I saw his depths and his disappointments, and he was honest about that. But he never, ever had a doubt as to the importance of what we were doing and the significance of even these small steps. Uh, so the positivity um, was inspiring, um, as, as well as his other personality traits that I thought were very effective. I agree with that. And working with Andrew Rinpoche, uh, he always inspired everyone and expected uh, more out of each person you know, to, to give uh, up more. And even in his writing, he uh, emphasized uh, how he wanted to keep uh, to telling the truth. And he read through his draft again. He had written, he read through his draft again and checked everything with three questions to see if it stood the test of that. So that sounds uh, very much uh, like what he would do. Um, Densla, I want to ask you, uh, I'm still waiting, uh, we have some audience questions, but I want to ask you, Rimshe's book, the title is um, Memoirs of a Lifetime in Pursuit of a Reunited Tibet. And when I listen to, um, you know, the early, early, early speeches of His Holiness also, he talks about uh, the importance of uh, Tibet being um, reunited of the United Tibet. And uh, you speak a lot of a little bit about that. What did you feel when you with the title and how did it shoot? You know, how does it resonate with you? I think Rinpoche's idea of Tibet to be reunited because of the uh, present conditions has always been a major part of his uh, work. And uh, uh, if you read the early parts of his his life, he doesn't um, have a detailed explanation about a reunited Tibet, so to speak, but he tells it through his own family uh, history, family life, and what happened in his hometown and his home region of Nyarong, and then the early stories of his uh, escape uh, with his family to India and how Tibetans sort of got together, especially, you know, Ramesha always says it's reference to the first big gathering in exile in Bodhgaya, where they made a major sort of a pledge to Tibet uh, with, in front of his holiness for a, a reborn Tibet, so to speak. And so uh, Ramesha's idea that encompasses all of Tibet, befitting his holiness, belief that he is of service culturally, spiritually, for the well-being of all the Tibetan people, I think sort of fits in very well. Thank you, Densla, for putting that perspective. I'm going to look at the uh, audience questions we have. While I do that, I would like to ask each of you uh, to 
um, reflect on, maybe share a personal story or anecdote about uh, Rinpoche. I'll start with uh, Greg and then Dinsala, please. I have a, a very strong memory of an event with Lodi. Um, when I left the State Department in 1998 and went over to work in the White House, I was in charge of the efforts to impeach President Clinton. And within a matter of weeks of the time that I arrived there in September of 1998, there was a plan for the Dalai Lama to meet with President Clinton. He did it every year. And so Lodi approached me. Jeff Bader was the National Security Council official in charge of it. And Jeff was a, a, is a wonderful and total supporter of Tibet and was a hugely important interlocutor for Lodi, but I was included because I had just given up the, the job as first coordinator. And I said to Lodi, I said, you might tell His Holiness when he comes into the White House this time that the situation is a little different than under ordinary circumstances because the president and Mrs. Clinton have just gone through a very rough period of time in their marriage. And I explained something that I think actually Lodi knew all about. And he said, do you think I should tell the Dalai Lama about it? And I said, yes, this, this Mata Lewinsky thing uh, has has been a, a problem in their marriage and that they're trying to work through it. And they're going to be in the same meeting together. They always met together with the Dalai Lama, Hillary Clinton and the president. So I said, it's important for the Dalai Lama to know about the context of this meeting. It was happening, I think, about the third or fourth week of September which was a very rough period of time in the president's life. So so Lodi arrives, he winked at me, he said that he told the Dalai Lama about the situation. We went into the meeting and um, there it was Jeff Bader, Mr. President, the First Lady, Greg and Lodi. And we had 10 or 15 minutes of conversation, at which point the whole the, the Dalai Lama looked at us and said, May I have a private meeting with the president and Mrs. Clinton? So we all left. And I think we had a little marriage counseling going on with the Dalai Lama and the president and Mrs. Clinton for about half an hour, 40 minutes. And I think that was a memory that I'll remember. A special moment. Uh, thank you. Let me see. Okay. Uh, let me show you just a short, interesting piece. Uh, when uh, Lodi started working, uh, in Delhi, this is where he was trying to find support from people like George Fernandez and others. This is in the late 60s, early 70s. Uh, occasionally, I would be there accompanying him or helping him. And eventually, Lodi started a group called Parliamentary Group for Tibet. It was an effort that didn't necessarily have all out support from the Tibetan government, so to speak. Very tepid, so to speak. And uh, the, how you got around doing is you have to contact these people. And in those days, telephones were very rare. Even in the Dalai Bureau, there was one telephone in front of the representative, another one in the hallway. And uh, private homes also didn't necessarily have phones unless you were well established in Delhi or you were a government official. So anyway, there were these public uh, phones uh, in different parts of small markets sometimes outside of a restaurant. And you had to go to these public phones and you had to dial and call somebody. 
And the moment uh, somebody picked it up on the other end, you had to immediately put in the coins. And if you didn't do it fast enough or with the right amount, you would basically never get connected, you'd get cut off. So each time we have to make these uh, appointments, you have to actually go out to some shopping center, take a bag full of coins, and you know the, the, the Indian coins there, like all kinds of sizes, whatever, and you have to dump in a bag full within three seconds or so before you lost connection. So that's a story which true, and it's also adds to, you said, Lodi was insistent, but he was also persistent, and that's how early he got some of the early work done. World peace depended on whether you had enough nickels. Yes, and to let it drop in time quickly. <laughs> and later on, uh, Rimshya was very proficient on his cell phone. He would write long emails also on his cell phone and carrier. As soon as he got off the phone, his got off the plane, his phone would be um, there as his uh, companion. So we have a question, email question. Um, uh, from Mr. Bill Shula, uh, he asks, um, can Mr. Craig speak to Gerimji's success in working U.S. leaders from different parties across the aisle? And in the same way, can Tenzitatonga speak to Rimche's skill in working with different factions in the Tibetan community? I think you have addressed this uh, briefly, but if you could speak to that, um, Greg, about his um, his success in working across parties and across the aisle? Uh, of course, I um, I dealt with Lodi when I was in a, an administration of the Democratic administration. Um, and the only times that I had to deal with Republicans on this issue was when I had to testify in front of the Senate or the House Foreign Relations Committee. But my impression was, and I have many stories about that, but my impression was that Lodi was just as successful dealing with Republicans like Chris Smith, a, a congressman in the House Foreign Relations Committee, uh, as he was with, with Democrats like Lee Hamilton or Nancy Pelosi or Dianne Feinstein. I, I, I knew that Lodi was liked and well-respected in the House and the Senate by members of both parties. There was not a partisan problem with Lodi at all. Thank you, and he also, in our work at International Campaign for Tibet, he always said the president that we always do everything bipartisan because that is how Tibet is. And we have always followed in that as well. Could I just add that when uh, President Clinton left office and there were Republican presidents after that, there were then Republican special coordinators on Tibet and Lodi was very successful and developed very important relations with the successors to my job, at, uh, in, you know, like Paula Dobryansky and others, who were also on the Republican side. So I don't think there was any problem with Lodi dealing with Republican presidents as well as Democratic presidents. No, absolutely. And then, Zila, what do you say to the question about uh, Rimchin's skill in working with different factions in the well, community? Uh, with all his talents, I don't think he wasted it on uh, petty Tibetan politics. Well, I might say so. That's why from a very young age, uh, we worked on the Tibetan Youth Congress. Uh, it was beyond regionalism or sectarianism. So uh, that was obvious from the start. 
and uh, his long life uh, service in the exiled Tibetan government and for his wilderness also fit into his bigger vision of serving the cause of the Tibetan people. So, and of course he was respected and probably consulted a lot on internal uh, Tibetan disputes or politics, but uh, I don't think he uh, wasted much of his energy on those things. We have a question um, from uh, uh, Molly Rodriguez from Mr. Craig. It says, what do you think prevents Chairman Xi or his representatives from engaging the Dalai Lama or restarting the dialogue with His Holiness or his representatives? Well, I wish I knew. I, I think it takes a good deal of courage inside the Chinese state to overcome the inertia that has been built up of just marginalizing and ignoring, trying to ignore the expatriate Tibetan community. And for that reason, uh, it's so important that the international community continue to continue to raise the issue of Tibet and that the the international campaign uh, about Tibet continues its efforts with energy. I, I think that this is this is the opinion of someone who's not a China expert, but watches carefully. This is probably the last president that you could possibly hope in China to extend his arm or his hand to the Tibetans. His whole being his whole administration, his whole message is to try to unite and bring together all of China. And he has shown absolutely no tolerance whatsoever for any kind of diversity inside of China. Um, so in, in, a, in a sad way, the domestic situation inside of China has gotten worse uh, rather than better. And there does seem to me to be less appreciation for what the Dalai Lama and Tibetan Buddhism has to offer to that country in terms of a spiritual level and understanding and a cultural connection to history. Uh, that in no way threatens the sovereignty or the authority of the People's Republic of China. But I think she thinks in symbols all the time. And so my guess is that it'll be very, very difficult to renew that kind of dialogue. Jiang Zemin, for all his problems, um, was adventurous. He, he really did engage in dialogue back and forth. This man, President Xi, doesn't seem to be interested in that at all. Seems, um, but I think the Tibetan world was uh, hopeful when he first um, took office because of his father's uh, connection to Tibetan Buddhism that we had heard about and others. But his actions in Tibet have been totally the opposite. Benzila, what do you say? Well, um, again, speaking as a non-China expert, <laughs> uh, I think... Uh, uh, on the long run, I'm optimistic because uh, uh, the Chinese state, so to speak, or the Chinese government uh, still has a serious uh, issue about their legitimacy in Tibet. Uh, the Tibetans have never really properly acknowledged the incorporation of Tibet into the People's Republic of China. 
His Holiness the Dalai Lama remains in exile. So this question of legit their legitimacy is never going to be solved unless they uh, tackle Tibet. And uh, furthermore, it's not that the Chinese have not paid attention to Tibet, even after they incorporated Tibet into the PRC at various levels, especially when they were having difficult issues to deal with. They saw the need to reach out to his holiness or take a new initiative to try and solve the Tibet issue. At the worst of times, uh, we might be surprised with that outreach from the Chinese, in fact. So I, I see it that way. Thank you. Um, we're running out of time, but I want to take one more question uh, from Lausanne Gatso. He says, um, what do you attribute as the main reason for all reasons for why the dialogue process between China and the Dalai Lama ultimately failed? And what do you feel needs to happen for it to resume and have any hope of success for resolving uh, the Tibet conflict? I think probably Tenzin is closer than I am to this, but I would suggest that you read his book <laughs> to find out what happened. It's really actually a beautifully written book. And it, it's, it's a heavy book, but it's really very, very interesting if you care about Tibet. I think my only one comment is that I think, that, as I said, the international community has got to continue to keep Tibet in the negotiations with China. Uh, yes, we care about climate change. Yes, we care about trade and technology. But we cannot forget that Tibet lives or dies with the international. And so the Americans and the Europeans and the Indians have got to continue to include Tibet in all its dialogue with China, or China will never feel the need to have a dialogue with the Dalai Lama. It may be true that China needs to take steps to accommodate itself with the people of Tibet. Uh, and won't do that and hasn't haven't done that successfully yet. But they, they will they will um, minimize and marginalize and ignore the Dalai Lama and threaten people who don't uh, in order to maintain that they will not have any conversations or further dialogue. And I, I think the international community simply cannot accept that position. It's got to be we have got to be continually pressing on that. As, and Lodi would advise us to do that, I think, if you were here today. Thank you. Tenzila. Oh, I have nothing much to add other than to say uh, maybe our dialogue process uh, tapered off because uh, the Chinese had a false sense of security because their economy was booming and they were getting to do whatever they liked all over the world. And I say a false sense of security because now. Uh, the real secure issues of security and China's economy is coming up. And we know just because you have an economic boom does not mean, you know, everything is good under the sun. On that note, we reached uh, the end uh, of our program today. Um, but before we go, I want to uh, want our viewers to hear from Lodi himself. Um, so we have a clip here of uh, Rubiche speaking at the uh, U.S. Senate Foreign Relations uh, Committee, and I'm going to play it here. 
Unfortunately, Unfortunately even among uh, my own community, there are some people who think, well, nonviolence is something very passive, you know, something that, you know, maybe only sometimes weak people can, uh, you know. I will tell you that, in fact, I think to struggle nonviolently is the most difficult struggle, most difficult. You just can't say that, oh, I have become nonviolent, as if it is kind of declaration, and then from that day on, you are nonviolent. No. Every moment, it is a new dedication that we have to make to remain nonviolent. And we can only do it again because of the leader that we have. I will just share with you uh, a few years back, as uh, the leader of the Tibetan delegation, I had the opportunity to even go to my birthplace. If you see some of the footages of my visit, you see me kind of, you know, with a smile, trying to be nice. But I will tell you today that the pain that I was going through, I was visiting a monastery that I grew up because I was a young monk. 70% of it is total ruins. 70% of it is total ruins now. You know, a place that I grew up, you know, as a child, total ruins. And I actually visited which my colleagues also, you know, do not know. I also visited the site where I know my grandmother was tortured to death. I also visited the site <coughs> where my elder brother <coughs> was starved to death. <coughs> In spite of that, because of the leadership that his soldiers provide, because of the commitment that we have made to nonviolence, you see me all smiles <coughs> with my Chinese counterparts. I'm sharing this with you because you understand and appreciate more the part of struggle that His Holiness has led us. So please help us stay on this course because this is not only important for us, this is also important for China. That was Gerdrumchi speaking at the U.S. Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Rumchi was a superbly talented diplomat. Uh, he was an uh, inspiration to all of us in the Tibet movement and to supporters of human rights uh, around the world. Once again, I want to share Rumchi's book, um, the Dalai Lama Special Envoy, Memoirs of a Lifetime in Pursuit of a Reunited Tibet, has been released by Columbia University Press. And um, the link to purchase the book uh, it will be shared on our online channels. Thank you again, Greg and Denzla, both of you for joining us and being part of this uh, special uh, program today. For our viewers, uh, please tune in next month. We will have another episode of Tibet uh, Talks. As always, uh, thank you for joining us. And uh, please uh, follow us uh, on our, um, for our newsletters and updates. And uh, look forward to seeing you next month. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Tibet Talks. Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. Learn more at savetibet.org slash pod.
find out how you can get involved in our efforts to promote human rights and democratic freedoms for the people of Tibet, please visit SaveTibet.org support. Thank you, and see you next time on Tibet Talks.